Okay. Last week, as you may recall, almost all of you will recall, um, Rama was born, and his three brothers were born, and they grew up, and they went off and did brave things with his uh, Rama and his ever-present brother Lakshman. And then as a result, at, at the end of all the brave things that they did, Rama was married to Sita, and they had their wedding ceremony, and now Rama and Sita are heading back to the city of Ayodhya. From here, things get a little dicey. Okay. So, um, the whole wedding party had come to where um, Janaki, they call her Janaki also because she's the daughter of Janaka, Sita, lived. Dasarata, Rama's father, came, and the whole wedding party is making its way back to the land of Ayodhya where they all live. And on the way, the king observes that not all the omens are good. This is Dasarata. They're much more attuned to sort of how nature plays in was a higher age and the whole world is more harmonious. And so he becomes very concerned because this is the triumphant return of his son and his, her new bride. But as they're going, he sees that not all the omens are good and he becomes very concerned and he consults Vasishta, who's the rishi, who's his palace um, advisor at all times. And Vasishta says that the omens are mixed, that the birds indicate that trouble is coming but that all the land animals say that at the end there will be a happy ending. The Ramayana does not explain to us exactly how Vasishtha was able to know this. But it's just, there's so many layers in this story where they just fold in all these different realities, and one of them is this, that the energies that people are feeling and experiencing are um, expressed in, in all these different forms. And they were almost to Ayodhya when all of a sudden there was this huge interruption of a terrible thunderclap and lightning and storm and this great um, well-known figure named Parasurama suddenly appeared on the scene and blocked their path. Now, we always have these characters in the story that have some ancient grudge for some reason or another. And this particular man, his father, had been killed by a kshatriya. So he swore that all kshatriyas in the world would have to die. And that, of course, is the caste of Rama and his family because they're kings. So his father had been a sage, and a Brahmin, and the kshatriyas had killed him. And so he was going to destroy all of them. And he'd been at this for a really long time. So Dasarata, the father of Rama, uh, it, was, it was Rama that Parasurama challenged. He said, it's you I want to fight with. And Dasarata, as a father doesn't seem to know who his son is. You know, when Vishwamitra came to get him, to take him to protect his yagya from the um, Rakshashas, Dasarata was very afraid for his son. The, the blindness of the father is demonstrated through Dasarata. He can't stand back and see who his son really is. So he tries to interfere with this angry uh, warrior who wants to fight with Rama. And the warrior just, Pasar, uh, Parasurama just, pushes Dasaratha away. It's not you I'm interested, it's him. And Rama, by contrast, is completely in his own power. He knows exactly who he is. And so Parasurama says, you, I know that you were given a very powerful bow. That's how you won Sita as your bride. He said, I have a bow that's equally powerful. So before I will fight you, I have to know if you're a worthy opponent to me. So he handed him the bow to string. 
imagining that Rama would not have the power to do it. But immediately Rama just strung it, and then he put an arrow in it like this. And then he says to this man, he says, Rama says, once I have, you know, uh, notched the arrow into the bow like this and it pulled the string, he says it has to fulfill itself. So he says to him, he said, what would you like to sacrifice? Your ability, to, your locomotion, he says, your ability to move through this world or the accumulated benefit of all your tapasya. <laughs> and then he also says to him, you've been very vengeful because of your father's death and it's time enough already of this. You've done everything that you need to, to go. This wrathful attitude does not serve you. And all of a sudden, Parasurama recognizes that he's in front of an incarnation of Vishnu. He's in front of the Lord. And he says, I recognize you for who you are. He says, take all the benefit of my tapasya and let me go. And I will go off now and begin the next phase of my life. In other words, I will let all this behind me. Now, we have these encounters repeatedly. Remember, Rama went into the ashram where the poor woman who'd been unfaithful to her husband uh, had been living invisibly the whole time until Rama stepped into the grounds and then all of a sudden at the coming of the Lord. We have various, and we have others of them, various either evil characters or often cursed characters, characters who are cursed to be bad, who behave in bad ways until they meet the Lord. I mean, the the, um, Lord Rama in this case, the implications of it are obvious. You know, that the darshan of God, that the surrender to God, even sometimes that, that Rama himself kills them. In other words, just takes away, kills that part of themselves that was evil, liberating that part of them which is good. So we do this over and over again until we get into our minds, you know, this idea that whatever it is that we've been, it can all be transformed by God. In the story of the Mahabharata, which we were doing last time, several times when, remember when Arjuna was not willing to give the fight what Arjuna, but Krishna thought he really ought to do, Krishna picked up his own weapon and jumped from the chariot and was going to fight. And whoever he was attacking always said, go ahead, Lord, just kill me, it would be great. You know, I would be happy to die at your hand. And then Arjuna would get his courage up and pull Krishna back. But to be slain by the Lord means to have everything that's not divine taken away from you. So Rama repeatedly fulfills this purpose. And each of these stories has met many levels of symbology, but that's the most obvious one. And so they're, they're all interesting, all the different ways in which this happened. This one was filled with wrath and vengeance. And then once he engaged with God and Rama drew the bow, you know, once the power was focused then it had to fulfill itself. And that's another way also of saying that God's power, you know, it will be fulfilled. It's never just squandered. And if we draw the attention of divinity with that much force, then it will act on our lives. Something will happen. So, now of course, the citizens of Ayodhya are just thrilled because Rama is the darling of everyone because of his greatness. And now he has the beautiful pure-minded Sita who's a worthy partner for him. This whole story is about Rama and Sita. I mean, it's about this perfect, um, romantic is much too small a word for it, but this perfect balanced example of male-female partnership. The perfect woman is Sita, the perfect man is Ram. Swami Kriyananda's often remarks somewhat cynically 
that men expect their wives to behave like Sita, but forget that they have to therefore behave like Ram. <laughs> because it's often much more is given to the, the necessity for the woman to be like Sita was. So now all that happens is for 12 years, Ram and Sita live in perfect harmony in the city of Ayodhya, and everyone flourishes. And when people remark, Sita simply says, how could it be otherwise? Ram, um, Ram's affection for me is perfect and pure, and my affection for him is equal to his, and Ram has conquered his senses. He is a, a perfect, perfect man, and therefore harmony is inevitable between us. So now, Dasaratha, now that everything is all established, the king decides that it's time for him to crown, to actually have a coronation ceremony and give Rama the, officially give him the right to the throne. He might not take it over till Dasaratha passes away, but the coronation ceremony is very important. You also have to understand in these contexts, once a king is crowned, that's considered to be a divine. The kings are crowned by God, really. So once the ceremony takes place, it's not just a, like an election. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, a, a divine shift has taken place. And that this, he's, been, he's been crowned the king, not merely in the eyes of man, but also in the eyes of God. And the way the whole um, country worked, the king was, uh, was not incidental to the way they saw all their well-being. So Dasarata felt, of course, that Ram was the oldest and also the most worthy, and everyone agreed. So he decides that he would make him Yuvraj, which means the one who will take over next. And, and so they um, set, decide that they were going to have this coronation ceremony and they're going to have it immediately. And he summons Rama to his presence and Rama acts out his uh, perfectly self-controlled nature. Dasarata tells him he's going to be crowned, you know, as the heir apparent, as the king to be. And Rama just accepts it with complete equanimity. There's no excitation, there's no... Um, fulfillment of desire. It's just, if that's what my father wishes, that would be my honor to serve. And Dasarata says uh, he was been, he's been having bad dreams. He feels that there's evil omens in the air, so he wants this to happen very, very quickly. So he says, you know, we've decided today and tomorrow morning at dawn we're going to have the ceremony. Um, so Rama goes immediately to his mother, Kashalya, who there were three mothers and four sons. Sumitra had twins. And uh, Kake is the mother of Bharat, Sumitra is the mother of Lakshmana, and Shatrugna and Kashalya is the mother of Rama. So Rama goes to tell his mother, and she's already heard, and she's there doing ceremonies, and they're praying for her son, and they're just, everyone is completely in joy. The whole town knows, everyone is thrilled. They just couldn't imagine a more wonderful thing than him being crowned. As it happens, Bharat, who is one of the other sons. Bharat's companion among the brothers is Shatrugna. He's always with him. Rama's companion among the brothers is Lakshman. The, the, they make two pairs, the four brothers. The two twins split up and serve others. As it happens, Bharat is not in Ayodhya at this time. He and Shatrugna have gone to Kaike's uh, father's home, which is a little bit distant away, but they have just gone to be with the other part of the family, to enjoy the other relatives, so this is all happening when Bharat and Shatrugna are away from Ayodhya. But because of the bad dreams that Dasarat has been having, he feels that he might die soon. And he's afraid, he wants to see this happen because it's his last remaining desire. Both his duty as a king to ensure the uh, continuity, 
and also his love as a father. So, um, Kaikei is the youngest of the queens, and she is in many ways the, the king's favorite because she's younger and she's more beautiful. And she was actually brought in because the two older queens, Sumitra and Koshalya, um, no one had any children. And so she was br- the younger queen was brought in both because the king loved her, but also because it was the hope that she would give birth. But she also never had children until all of them, as we remember last week, did the yagya and the, the divine nectar appeared and the wives ate the nectar and then these children were born as a manifestation of that divinity. So Kaikei has a maidservant. And this maidservant is um, one of the most reviled characters in the Indian scriptures. She just becomes the evil person. Now, just for your own mental relaxation, as I mentioned earlier, characters in this story just appear for a while and then go away. So you can just kind of relate to them. You don't have to try to remember them like we did when we were dealing with the Mahabharata. And her name is Mantara. And Mantara is also described as having a twisted spine and kind of being a a bent-over character. And in this case, they describe that her twisted body was the result of her twisted mind. So she's out on the street doing some shopping for her mistress, and she sees that the whole town of Ayodhya has begun to celebrate. And she asks, what's happening? And they say, well, tomorrow Rama is going to be crowned king and celebrate with us. Isn't this going to be so wonderful? So she goes back to where Kaikei is, and she goes up and and walks in and says to her, why are you just sitting there? Your whole life is about to be destroyed. And the queen just looks at her maidservant and, what are you talking about? She says, tomorrow, that Mantara says, tomorrow Rama is going to be crowned king. And Kaikei is just thrilled. Rama, the, the, the soul of Dharma, my beloved Rama, because all the mothers consider all the sons to be theirs. What great joy. And then she takes off from her neck a beautiful costly necklace because the habit is when someone gives you good news, you give them a gift. So she offers to her maidservant this costly necklace. But the maidservant is, is wonderstruck that Kaikei doesn't seem to understand what's happening. She says, don't you understand? Your happy days are over. You know, you have your son is Bharat. And when Rama becomes king, you know, your son will become nothing. And Rama's children will take the throne after him, and your son will become less and less. And you're just sitting here thinking this is a joyous occasion, when now calamity has fallen on your head. And she said, now you live comfortably, but soon you'll be like a servant in your own home. Rama will push you farther and farther away. And Kaikeya starts saying, but Rama is a good man. He loves me as a mother He's always been good to us. He's always treated us all equally. He adores Bharat. And then Mantara will hear none of this. All is lost, she says. What a foolish, naive woman you are. Then the author of the, um, of, of the Ramayana says, Kaikeya was a good woman, but she was susceptible to bad influence. And so they always just sort of put this forward. I mean, how many times are good people made susceptible to bad influence? So this is the supreme example of being made, being made susceptible to bad influence, but nonetheless it happens because this maidservant is so determined and Kaikeya just hears her and can't keep her own balance in the story. 
And she's and Kai, uh, Mantara says to Kaikei, you know, once Rama is crowned king, do you think he will think of his brothers as his allies? Every brother will become an enemy. And you as the mother of Bharat will become an equal enemy to Rama as Bharat himself. And then he, she be, uh, Kaikei begins to become nervous and she asserts, well, Rama is the soul of Dharma. He would never behave like this. Mantara says, once power is given to him, it changes everyone. So now Kaikei becomes to be a little bit afraid. And then Mantara plays the last thing. Why do you think the king is rushing this coronation? Why do you think he didn't wait until Bharat came home? Why didn't he say it while Bharat was still here? He sent Bharat away. That's the obvious reason. And now it all begins to spin in Kaikei's mind. And she doesn't really know what she can do. And, and, and she's, she suddenly becomes bewildered. How can I save this? How can I save my son Bharat? What a tragedy is about to befall you know, my son and myself. What shall we do? And then Mantara, who's very shrewd and has been with this woman for a long time, she says, don't you remember? Wasn't there a time? And then she reminds Kaikei of this experience that happened, that Dasaratra was on the field of battle, and he was terribly wounded. And Kaikei came out and was able to get him into a chariot and rescue him and brought him to a safe place and then nursed him back to health. And the king was so grateful to his young queen, he said to her, he said, you can have two boons, anything at all that you want. Just ask me and I will give it to you. I promise you, I owe you my life. And so then Mantara says, now is the time to claim those boons because the, word, the king's word once given can never be taken back. In this age, as they say, they speak about this a lot later, the entire honor of the kingdom and the family and the country all depended on the absolute honesty and reliability of the king's word. Once given can never be taken back. So Mantara says, here's what you should ask for your two boons. First, ask that Bharat be, be, be uh, crowned as the king, not Rama. And then, of course, Rama must be removed so that he will be no threat. So tell Dasarata he must be banished to the forest for 14 years. Kaikeya is just horrified by this, but she realizes that it's her only hope. She's become convinced that her life is endangered here and all of her well-being and her precious son is in danger and for his sake she's going to protect him. So then persuaded, she says, Mantara says to the queen, she refers to something as go into the sulking room, she says. Apparently the queen had a sulking room. (laughs) I love that. I just love the idea of having a place you can just go when you want to be in a bad mood and then everybody knows. (laughs) Whether or not that's really true or not, she says, you know, take off your jewels and your beautiful clothes and just throw yourself on the floor of the sulking room so the king will really understand how serious you are. Bharat, you know, Rama must be banished. Bharat must be crowned. Only then is your position safe, this evil woman tells her. So Kaikei by now is completely convinced that this is what's happening. Now Dasarata, meanwhile, has no idea that any of this is brewing. This is just going on between his queen and her maidservant. And he's just delighted because everyone has agreed with him that Rama should be crowned. 
All of the preparations are in order. The town is celebrating. Rama and Sita are now in their own quarters, he believes, you know, praying and be- get making themselves ready with all the ceremonial things they need to do to uh, enter into this holy occasion. It's the end of the day for him, and he goes to visit his favorite queen, Kaikei, just assuming that she will be as delighted as he is. And he comes into her quarters, and usually she greets him. She's dressed beautifully. She expects to see him. She's nowhere to be found. So he just assumes in the playful mood of the day that she's playing a game with him, that she's hiding somewhere, and that this is a, a, a little frivolous flirtation. So he searches here, and he searches there, and he goes all through the palace and the gardens, and he can't find her anywhere. And finally, he finds her in the sulking room, and she's stretched out on the floor with her hair disheveled, just looking absolutely stricken. And he has the power of the whole world virtually at his disposal. And he, oh, my dear, what has happened to you? Who has offended you? What is it that you need? I have the power to grant whatever desire you want. Just speak, my dear, and I will give it to you. And Kaikei says, no one has hurt me. No one has done anything. But there is something that you can and you must do. Now, he's just elated. She looks utterly stricken, and she says to this, and he says, whatever it is, I swear that I will do it. She says, you must promise me. He said, I've said I promise. I will promise on the basis of that which is most precious to me in the name of Rama, in the name of my son, I promise that I will give you whatever you want. So she stands up, and for just a moment, the the Ramayana says she hesitated because she was not really evil. She was just under the influence of evil. For just a moment, she hesitated, but the force of what the evil woman had put into her mind was too strong. So she, in a very powerful way, she turns to the four directions and she invokes the witness of the stars and the the creation all around her. Everyone says, you know, he has promised. She pronounces, he has promised. And then she says, do you remember when you were injured in battle and I took care of you, that at the end of that you offered me two boons? Dasarata said, of course, my dear, how could I forget? You know, I owe you my life. Whatever you asked for, I will happily give it to you. And so Kaikei says, yes, you have promised. She said, let this coronation take place, but crown my son Bharat, and then banish Rama to the forest for 14 years. Dasarata just can't believe that she's spoken. And for a moment, his mind shuts down. He's struck dumb, as they say. He just, he's speechless. He can't really hear what, what has been said to him. And then when he just stares at her and realizes that this is what she's actually asked of him, he simply passes out. He just falls to the floor. And after a while, he, he wakes up and he sees her standing there. And she seems just unrelenting in her point of view. And again, he, he just loses consciousness because he can't integrate anywhere what has just happened to him. Then he says, what has Rama done to you? You know, what, is, what has happened to you? And Kaikei just doesn't even bother to answer. She just stands aloof in her position and just has no sympathy for him, which is what happens to us when our minds get overcome with evil thinking. 
You know, you, you can see how people become. They're not sympathetic anymore. They no longer see the implications of their actions. They become caught up in these strange delusions. Most of us do not go as far as Kaikei, but we see how once the emotions get riled up, often we don't think clearly at all. So the king begs her, how can you ask this of me? Rama is the soul of Dharma. He's my life. If you take Rama from me, you're taking my life away from me. And Kaikei only speaks, you promised. How can you now say no? You know, where is your Dharma? You will be the laughing stock of everyone. The kingdom will collapse. It says if a king breaks his promise... No one else in the kingdom will feel the need to keep their word. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in such a world as that? You know? She said, even the sea will break its boundaries. The sun will not rise in the morning. You know, all dharma is interdependent. It's actually, there's great truth in that. I mean, even now, Master says, you know, that the the bad weather that we see, seriously speaking, the bad weather that we see and future cataclysmic events that he promised, he said, are all the result of the enormous dissonance of human nature on this planet right now. That we just imagine we can behave so dishonorably, so greedily, so selfishly, cause so much grief out of pure selfishness, and just think, what, it's just going to go away. And so here, Kaikei says, if the king doesn't keep his promise, why should the sea keep its promise to the land? You know, why should the rains keep their promise to the seasons? Why should the sun keep its promise? No one will keep their promise if the king doesn't keep his promise. And furthermore, she said, if you crown Rama as king and fail to crown my son and fail to exile him to the forest, I'm going to drink poison and die. <laughs> so this is the only way that it will be, or I will kill myself. The king again just passes out. He faints. The next time he awakens, he said, you know, Fooled by your beautiful face, I took you for a woman and married you. But now I see that you are a demon incarnate. And then he asked, does Bharat endorse your plans? You shall gain the kingdom, um, but become a widow by this action, because if you do this, I will die. And then he says to her then, he he says to her, you know, if this, is, if this is what you insist upon, he said, you will be, as he called it, a jubilant wood, widow. What good will this do you? The whole world will despise you for this. And of course, that prediction proves true. <clears throat> so then he says to her simply, I renounce you as my wife. I renounce the son that you bore. Um, this is supposed to be the dawn of the day that Rama is uh, crowned, but instead it will be the day of my funeral. And Kaikei is completely unmoved. She said, send for Rama. Keep your promise to me. So then the king has no choice. He sees that she's absolutely adamant and he's absolutely bound by his word. So he sends for Rama and has him come. So Dasarata's only hope now is that Rama himself will refuse. But uh, no such hope. So Rama comes into the, it's, it's the, the morning now. By now it's dawn, and it's the day he's supposed to be crowned as king. And the whole town is ready for that. 
And the king sends a messenger and has Rama come to his palace. And, and Rama just assumes, you know, this is some part of the ceremony, and so he comes. So, wait just a second. <clears throat> right. Okay. Dasarata has spent the night in Kaike's chambers, but he's spent it mostly unconscious and just passed out in anguish. And so the morning comes, and now it's time to call uh, Rama. So Rama comes in, and there he saw his father lying on the ground and seemingly in anguish, and he was completely uh, bewildered, and he ran to him, and he touched his feet. My father, are you all right? And Dasarata is so overcome that all he can say is his son's name, Ram, Ram, but nothing more. And then Rama is very frightened. Have I angered my father? What is this about? Have I done anything to offend him? Is he ill? And he looks to Kaikei to tell him. And Kaikei stands as aloof as ever and says, no, he's not, he's not angry with you and nothing is wrong with him. He has something to tell you and he's afraid to tell you because he thinks you might be hurt. Long ago, your father promised me two boons and now that I have asked for them, he has decided not to keep his promise. He seems to regret that he made this offer to me you must help him. It's in your hands to help him. Only you can make the, help the king keep his word. And Rama said, Of course, I'll do whatever he asks. You know, my duty is to my father, and his word is completely binding on me. Whatever it is that he asks of me, I will do. Dasarata just becomes even more distraught, and Kaikei becomes more proud and determined. So she says, You're right. It is your highest duty to fulfill the promises of your father, and here is what he has promised me, that Bharat should be anointed as the future king, and this very day you should go off to the forest where you must live for the next 14 years. The king was stricken again with pain and suffering as these words were spoken, but Rama says, oh, is that all? By all means, the king's promise must be fulfilled this very day. I will renounce my fine clothes. I will mat my hair and dress in bark, is how they always describe it. And in that moment, as the Ramayana says it, you know, look at the extraordinary, both honor and detachment. He was supposed to be crowned king, and instead he's going to be set off to the forest. And with the same even-minded acceptance, Rama just says, if that's what is coming to me, that's what I will accept. He said, I would give up everything for my brother Bharat, and I would do whatever my father wants of me. Why should he be afraid to ask? He says to Kaikei, why, why didn't he ask me himself? He said, now let us send for Bharat and bring, have the celebration happen. So Kaikei is completely bewildered by evil at this point, and she has no idea what she's done. She thinks that she's done this wonderful thing. But, but as, as the story unfolds, of course, she realizes. So then Rama touches the feet of his father and walks out. Now Lakshmana had been listening at the door, and he did not take it so calmly. He was extremely angry about this, as he begins to speak in a few moments. And so he goes to, first they go to see Koshalya, and he tells Koshalya that everything is going to be different. And she, of course, is overcome at the, the treachery of her fellow wife at this point. So now they are in, in front of the mother, and he tells Koshalya what happened. 
And Kishalya herself just falls to the floor with grief. She says, but if you go, she says, how will I live? I must go with you. And Lakshman just becomes angry. He says, you know, he's lost, the king has lost his senses over his infatuation with this young wife. We should just throw the king out and take the kingdom by force. And Rama, of course, she liked what Kachalya, what Lakshman was saying, but she was also frightened by them. And Rama says, there can be no talk of rebellion against my father's word. And to his mother, he says, you can't come with me. You have to stay here to take care of my father. How would he manage without you? I have to fulfill his, his word. You have to care for him. And Lakshman keeps talking about you know, turning against the father, refusing to go, and Rama will have none of it. And so finally, Rama's goodness calms Lakshman down, and, they, and Rama leaves to go tell Sita what has happened. So he goes to Sita, and he starts talking to her about how I have to go to the forest, and you need to stay here, and you need to take care of you know, my mother and my father who will need your care once I'm gone. And Sita is just enraged by what Rama says. She's not angry at the king or any, or even at Kaikeyi. She's angry at her husband. She said, I know what my dharma is, and my dharma is to be with you. Do you think that I am so shallow in my affection for you that merely because I'm not going to live in the palace with you anymore, I have to stay here? And then her anger turns to weeping. You know, how could you turn your back on me? After all my affection and all my love for you, how could you possibly imagine that my duty is anywhere but with you. And then Rama realizes, he, he tries to tell her how hard it's going to be in the forest and how, how austere it'll be and how dangerous it might be. And again, she's um, shocked that he should think that her devotion to him is so shallow that danger and discomfort would deter her from following where her husband is going. So in all of these ways... Um, you know, the uh, perfection of the selfless love they have for each other is manifested. So Ram saw that he couldn't dissuade her and that, in fact, she was saying the truth. And in, with the example of Sita in front of him, Lakshman also says, my duty is with you. Wherever you go, I will go. So it's decided that the three of them are going to go off together. So they go together back to the king to say goodbye. This is all just this morning. He's been called. This was supposed to be the day the coronation is supposed to start. The whole town is waiting, and the crowds see the three of them just walking by themselves, and they're completely confused by what's going on. And when the three come in, the king rushes to them, maybe hoping that this is going to be a change. And all Rama says is, Father, we've come to you for your blessing before we leave. And then Dasarata says... I'm bound by my, my, my promises, but you're not bound. You could just rebel and say that these are not righteous promises. And <clears> then <throat> you could take the kingdom by force. That's what Dasarata makes the same suggestion. And Rama says, I have no desire for this kingdom. If it's not given to me in a dharmic way, why would I ever take it? I'm going to the forest. That's what you said. My father's word to me is law. Then the king says, Stay just one more night. And Rama makes a statement that I have always loved. He says, inevitable sorrow is not made less by postponement. He says, now is the time to go.
Send for Barat. Bring him here. <clears throat> and the king says, all right, then we'll all go with you. The armies, you know, the, the citizens, the animals, the chariots, gather things together. And then Kaikei turns to, to the, her husband and says, ha, you'll empty the kingdom of all its wealth and power and you'll just give Barat an empty shell. That's not keeping your word. And everybody starts becoming angry at what she's saying. And she says, no. And Rama calms everyone down. And he says, um, you know, all I'll take with me is what we need in the forest, baskets and uh, simple clothes. And Kaikei then offers them. Uh, she happens to have right there bark garments. <laughs> you know, she's completely prepared for this. And they describe also she's completely unconscious of how, of how everyone else perceives her behavior. She's just so caught in this cloud of evil influence that she, she can't see how, how terrifyingly ghastly what she is doing is. And, I mean, I've never experienced or been in a situation like that that bad, of course, but I've seen it and I've experienced it where you do just get so lost that only later do you, can you stand back and see how this really looked to everyone. And so here's this story of how it, she just gets caught up in it and behaves that way. So to the weeping and wailing of everyone, they discard their beautiful garments. They put on these uh, garments of bark. And then... Um, so he says to his father, you know... Just a moment, let me just get it clear here. He, he speaks of his mother... And he says to his father and his mother, you know, take care of one another. I don't, my mother will be so sad at the separation from me. You must be kind to you. And then those are the last words he speaks in the palace. And then they all walk out. Now, the only one in the whole crowd, they say, is Sumitra, who is the mother of Lakshman and Shatrugna, mother of the twins. And they say that she understood who Rama was. This is how it's described. And she was the only one who was calm and understanding through this whole scene. She just realized that this is um, what has to happen, that a divine purpose is being fulfilled here. It's always interesting because in the lives of great um, avatars, this story of Rama is so old and now so covered over with so much myth that it doesn't really have um, you know, the ring of an authentic life as clearly as other lives do. But just even thinking of um, the life of Christ. And I was thinking about how the disciples often didn't understand what was really going on, but you have the picture always of, of, of John, the disciple John, who um, just seemed to understand a little more than the others understood. And he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, is how he describes himself in the Gospel of John. And, and even when... Jesus says that somebody at this table will betray me. Then the disciples say to, to John, ask him who he means. But what you, you see implied in that whole interchange is that somehow that John had the capacity to do things that the other disciples couldn't do. He had an intimacy with Jesus that allowed him to ask that question when the others could only ask John to ask the question. And so he says, you know, who is it, Lord? And then Jesus speaks of the one who dips his bread after me or the one to whom I offer this bread. There's different versions of it. And that's the one. But 
in, when I was read this in this story about Sumitra, of just having a different understanding of what was going on, that's, that's really illustrated in the lives of other masters whose lives are described in, in less mm, mythological or, or you know, less grand myth-oriented terms, that there's always one or two that have a, a wholly different relationship to all, that don't get swept up in the current of events. And so they present Sumitra as that one. And so she said to Lakshman, you're doing exactly the right thing. I'm very proud of you by going, you're going off with Rama. And she t- tells everyone, you know, try to, try to be, be less panicked about this. This is going where it needs to go. So they get into the chariot, the three of them to drive off, and the, all the citizens are um, just frantic about their leaving. And the king stands on the balcony and just watches them leave and just even after they're out of sight and there's nothing but just motes of dust, he stares at the dust until the dust is gone. And then he finally comes in from the balcony and Kaikei walks up next to him and he turns to her and he says, everything is in an end between us. If Bharat agrees to accept this kingdom, he said, there's no need for him to do my funeral rites. He's not, I would not accept them. He said, how will I live without Rama anymore? And then again he says to her, may you be happy as a widow. And then he goes to see his first wife, Koshalya, Rama's father. And she tries to comfort him, but he's, uh, she's also heartbroken, near unto death. And Sumitra is the only one who can really help them and tries to say, you know, have no fear. Rama will be glorious in the end. Sita and Lakshmana, everyone will be fine. Um, and don't feel, you know, give up this grief. It's not worthy of you. And so his mother is somewhat comforted, but Dasarata is beyond comfort. And so the whole town is following them out. And they get to, the, to stop at the bank of a river, and they spend the first night there, and all of the citizens camp around them, and the whole town of Ayodhya has decided it's just going to go and be in the forest because they can't bear to be separated either. So just before dawn... Rama wakes up and he tells the chariot driver to drive the chariot as if it were going back to the town so that um, then, then come, circle back and come and get us, but let's lure the citizens away because we can't take them with us. And so the citizens were fooled when they woke up and they all went back to the town. Okay. They came to the boundary of their kingdom and they came to the bank of a river and there's a, uh, the chief of that region is called Guha. And he had knew, knew that Rama was coming. And he felt great love for them, and he welcomed them. And he said, my kingdom is yours. You can spend your whole exile here. You can spend 14 years in my kingdom. I will care for you, and I will feed you, and you can live in my buildings. And Rama said, well, that would not really be in keeping with what my father promised. I'm exiled to the forest, and I'm grateful for your hospitality, but of course I can't accept it. And so he asked for Guha to provide him a boat to take him across the river. And then he sends the charioteer back to the king. And the charioteer, his heart is broken too. He says, take care of my father and take care of my mothers. And he said, especially be kind to Kaikei. He said, everyone is going to be angry to her. And he said, you know, she will especially need kindness. And I I don't want any um, anger to go toward her. She's just the instrument of fate. It just is what it has to be. So again, Rama just gives us this example, and when Lakshmana or anybody else speaks against her, he always tells them, no, 
She did what she felt she had to do, and it was God's will that it happened, and I won't have any of that. Rama even tries to tell Lakshman to go back to comfort their mothers, but he says he refuses. So that night they sleep under a tree, and the next day they meet a great sage, um, Bharadwaja uh, he's called. And then they, f- and they take his advice and they find a place to build a house, and then Lakshman builds them a little hut. And actually, the life begins to unfold in a rather nice way. They're out in the forest, they're among rishis, life is simple, but they begin quite happily their time in exile without any concern. So, meanwhile, the king is so upset and the queen is so upset that they don't realize how... um, the effect that the grief is actually going to have on the king. So he's sitting there that day and that night with Kaushalya. And he rouses himself enough to tell her a story. And he says, I know why this is happening. He said, when I was a young man, Dasarata tells the story to Kaushalya, a story he's never told anyone. He said, I was a very skilled hunter. And I was so good as a hunter that I could aim my bow and arrow, my my arrows, just by the sound. I could hear where, I could hear the sound of an animal and I didn't even have to see it. I could just know exactly where it was by the sound. And he said, and I became proud of my skill. And he said, one day I was out and I was hunting and I heard by the river the gurgling sound of an elephant drinking through its trunk. And just taking aim by the sound alone, I shot an arrow. And when the arrow landed, there was a scream of pain from a human voice. And the king was very alarmed, and he went over to see. And there was a a young man, an ascetic, there. And he had been filling his water jug in the river, and the gurgling sound of the water jug deceived the king, and the king had thought it was the sound of an elephant drinking. So the the young man falls. He said, you know, what enemy do I have? I live in the forest. I take care of my elderly blind parents. Why would anyone want to take my life? And then as he's there, he says, what will become of my parents? Even now they're waiting for me to bring water in the ashram here, and I'm stricken and I'm going to die. And then he sees that it's the king. And he says, my king who was meant to protect me has instead taken my life. And then he, and the king, of course, is horror stricken. But he, there's nothing else he can do. And he says, you know, you must go to my parents and beg their forgiveness. But before you go, pull this arrow out of me because of the pain. And Dasarata says, if I pull the arrow out, your life will go out with it. He said, yes, I'm resigned. So he pulls the arrow out and the blood gushes out and the young man dies. So then the king has to go and speak to the parents. And he goes to the ashram and there are these two elderly people just sitting there waiting and they hear the sound of his footsteps and they say, son, son, you have been so long. We were waiting for you here and we are thirsty. Did you forget that we were here? Did you become engaged in something of interest to you? We're so glad that you're back. 
And the king has to say, I am not your son. In fact, your son is never returning. And then he has to tell him about how he mistook the sound of the water jug filling for the sound of an animal drinking. And now he is responsible and he's taken responsibility, but there's nothing that can be done. And the old people begin to cry and they say, take us to where our son is. We can't live without his care. When we put him on the funeral pyre, we're going to have to step on the pyre with him. And so he escorts them down and they do the necessary ceremonies. And, they, and just as the old man is dying, he said, you were honorable to come and tell us, but know that we are dying because of being separated from our son and someday the same fate will come to you. So Dasarata says, and so it is for me. Okay, let's take a little break. Um, one thing that's uh, beneficial, and I think it's important, I mean, I'm here in our Ananda temple and representing Master's teachings and telling these epics. Um, and Master himself refers to these epics in Autobiography of a Yogi. As he says, my earliest acquaintance with the um, epics of Ramayana and Mahabharata was bittersweet because my mother would summon, whenever she needed to discipline me, she would summon examples from these epics because they were the cultural and the moral and the Dharma tradition of, the, of all of India. And as I talked more on the recording of the Mahabharata, which I did before, just before this one, about how these epics have kept the culture of India intact. And that was when I was crediting Beta Biasa with writing both of them, which was not true. <laughs> but uh, that Biasa, they knew that Kali Yuga was coming. That's what Biasa said. He knew Kali Yuga was coming and that it would be difficult to keep a clear understanding of the teachings. <clears throat> so he embedded it in the story. <clears throat> the Ma- I'm talking about the Mahabharata now. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he took a real... You know, Krishna was a real avatar, Arjuna was his disciple, the war of the Mahabharata really happened, but then he embellished it in order so it could bear the burden of spiritual teaching in such a in storytelling so people would understand it, the Ramayana being just the same. But I was commenting that and in India and in the footnotes of the version of this the Ramayana that I was going from, Rajagopalacharya's book, which I like very much, he, he has all these footnotes. Trying, or, and, and sometimes in the text, there's three different versions of the Ramayana, the Valmiki version, the Tulsidas version, and the Kamban version. And they all have, they pre- portray different incidents in different ways. And he tries to explain different ones and, and how certain devotees think that this is more true and then others think that's more true and think that Rama really would not have behaved this way and he really should have behaved that way. And, and it's a very serious thing. It's not at all, a, it's not light. Um, but I think when I read that, oh, thank God for Master, <laughs> so that I don't have to try to torture this centuries-old epic to try to squeeze out of it a clear understanding of what the spiritual path is all about. Because it's, these were symbols, and it's not clear, and it's hard to figure it out. And, it's, and I, we were also discussing, you know, Rama had, uh, Dasarata had three wives. In our present... Um, feminist age, the idea that the king had three wives doesn't go down really well. In fact, the whole story of Sita in the end doesn't go down very well. It's, and, but who knows how much of that has just been added in. And so it's hard enough even to just read the New Testament 
to sort of sort out what's been added, what's been taken out. And this is much older than that and has been through so many iterations uh, of storytellers who embellish and tell. I'm just relieved that we can enjoy it. We can take the lessons from it. But if we really want clear teachings, we can go to Master and go to Swamiji. And that's why the avatars keep coming back, especially um, in this ascending age when these stories were required through Kali Yuga. Because in Kali Yuga, it was, you couldn't really understand things directly. And the, the mass, the overall enlightenment of the planet went down. And I'm, I'm referring now to some things I said at the opening of the Mahabharata, but it's relevant here too, about how well these stories really do communicate. Just a fabulous number of things. But we don't have to torture them for exact teaching. We can just say, oh, that's interesting, and then read something that Master said if we really want to understand. Even the question of multiple wives. And I mean, many, many cultures have the tradition of more than one wife, but we don't tend to like it very much. And actually, um, Sai Ganesh was pointing out that Rama is the, the single example of a soul who only had one wife. And that's part of what, what he's held up for being so ideal because there was just Rama and there was just Sita. In Arjuna's life, which we just finished, in Krishna's life, I didn't really um, give you a, a long marital history there. But there were quite a few wives here and there. You know, all of them were noble and all of them were good, but um, that was just the way the culture was. I'm not even going to criticize it or... Um, endorse it. It's, it's just an interesting fact of how the story was told. We don't need to get our justification from there. We can just say, isn't this interesting and isn't it interesting how times change? And Raja Gopalacharya, in this version of it, from time to time stops to tell you, isn't it interesting how times change? Just take it for what it is and don't get really uptight about it. So any questions or comments or thoughts? Wait, but just a second, Joe. When we don't record the questions, they get really annoyed with us. Okay. You have to. I, always, I always was thinking that the characters in the Marabarta and also in this were, whether they were male or female, was all about a, a, a virtue or all about a, you know, a, a part of your... Yeah. your own inner self. The Mahabharata master himself interpreted saying that Beta Biasa, some of the characters were real and some of them were made up to represent certain qualities. And so they weren't all historical characters. There was, there was an historical basis for the story, but he, he padded it with a lot of symbolic characters and gave them symbolic names. And that's how Master, um, interp- the Gita coming out of the Mahabharata, that's how Master interprets the Gita, is based on the fact that Vyasa was, was, was using sim- symbolic characters to represent the story. The Ramayana has not ever been interpreted in the same way. Um, it's a simpler, it's a very different story. Um, I think as I go through it and as we go through it, a lot of the lessons are obvious. They, uh, inevitable sorrow is not made less by postponement. Um, poor Kaikei, who's really not a bad person, just gets completely sucked up by this evil influence and just begins to believe that her life is threatened when her life is not threatened at all. But she gets so confused, she thinks that's true. Um, Dasarata absolutely has to keep his word because how can his whole reality depends on his keeping his word and Rama absolutely won't hear of not honoring his father's word so they represent behaviors they represent cultural norms they represent ideals 
Sita becomes angry that she thinks her the mere discomfort is a reason for her to leave her husband. How dare you insult me with such a thought? So there's many, many lessons that just come right out of their events in this, in this particular one. In many ways, even more clearly, because it's, it's a much simpler story. And it, it's just... The first time I read this, I was just remembering this. I was 20. No, it must have been a little... Yeah, it was about 20. It was just before or just after I met Swami. Can't quite remember whether it was before or after. It was right at the same time. And I lived in San Francisco, so it must have been just after, because I think I moved up there afterwards. So when I was 21, 22, 23... I was living in San Francisco. I lived out at 4th and Geary. I worked down on Montgomery Street, and I took the Express Geary bus, the Geary Express bus every day to work. And I got, at East West Bookshop, when it was in Menlo Park, I got the three-volume Valmiki Ramayana. And I started reading that. Now, this must have been... Be- I can't put all the pieces together. It doesn't make a whit of difference. I'm sitting on the bus, and, I'm, and you know, this is like a thousand-page book. It's a huge book, the... And I start reading this, and I became so engrossed in that book. I, I vividly remember reading it on the bus, and it was at the point which is coming up where um, Sita has been abducted by the evil Ravana, and she's you know surrounded by ugly Rakshashis in the Ashok Garden, and there she is, and and she's and what's going to happen? And Rama doesn't know where he where she is, and and I look up, and everybody on the bus is just carrying on as usual. And I was just shocked. <laughs> and I, I almost stood up on the bus. Don't you understand? Sita's with Ravana. <laughs> Will Rama ever find him? But just a little piece of me knew that that would be loony. So I didn't do it. I was just gone. I, I'd never, I was so engrossed and so overcome by this. You know, it's never been like that again, of course, because that was the first one. Now, I didn't think at the time, but now I think, oh, how many lifetimes must I have heard that story? And so my engagement with it wasn't just the story itself, but everything it meant to me about rediscovering what was really going to become my life, even though I'm not sure that I knew it quite at that point. I was just beginning. But... uh, I never did read the Mahabharata then. I didn't read the Mahabharata until much later, but there was just the, ooh, this story just took me by the heart. I loved it. Yeah, I couldn't put it down. I would get on and off that bus, and I'd come dragging into my house. Oh, you know, what's going to happen? <laughs> and I know the last thing I was going to say, because I saw Sai Ganesh um, behaving in the way that many of my Indian friends behave. It's very serious business, these epics. And the discussion of Rama's behavior and Sita's behavior and, you know, whether the king was right and whether Bharat should have done this or not done this. I've had very serious discussions with my extremely westernized Indian friends about the behavior of various of the gods and goddesses, too. It's all, um, it has this reality that really has been the communicating force of really deep truths and therefore, even though it's symbolic and they're, you know, fully competent to understand it from many different levels, it's been the vehicle for something so important that every aspect of it really has been discussed and taught and, and contemplated. And it's not like 
in, in our context, this is, a, a, I, don't, I almost want to use the word fun, but I don't want to disrespect the epics. But it's, it's, it's a very interesting sort of side pattern. It's never, just as I was saying before, we don't have to rely on it. Whereas in many parts of the, you know, many people in the Indian culture who were raised on these, it's been much more central to their well-being. And I, I find it very sweet. The first time one of my Indian friends talked to me about something that Brahma had done <laughs> and, and the implications of that, I, I was a little startled. But what was also so endearing to me, uh, which is a real good lesson for Americans, is how um, childlike he was in the way he said that. And th- this particular man is, is really one of the most sort of savvy westernized indians i mean he works he's he works internationally without the slightest hesitation but still just talked to me about what brahma had done and the implications of it and it was uh very expansive for me to see how uh powerful all of these images can be and it was a very intelligent discussion it was by no means a a naive one it was just this is how this is how these principles had been learned. And the principles were very important, and the way they had been learned is by understanding what these characters, or in that case, what these deities had done, but, and how then, therefore, we could learn. And I, I, I envied it, because what do we have in our culture that even, in the American culture that... And I, I vividly recall just this one moment from the whole series of Joseph Campbell telling all those myths that... It must be it must be twenty years ago now when it first came out, but it was a really big thing when it came out. Beautiful. Uh, Bill Moyers interviewed Joseph Campbell, and he told all these wonderful stories. And Bill Moyers said to Joseph Campbell, "He said, what happens to a culture if it loses touch with its myths?" And then Joseph just raised his eyes and he looked out the window and he said, "This." <laughs> And it was like, that was true. This. We become absolutely rudderless. We have no moral values disintegrate, ethical values disintegrate. I mean, Kaikei said, the sea will not respect the boundaries of the land if if the king does not keep his word. Oh my gosh. And it was just like, that was just the way it was. I mean, well, we've come a long way downhill from there. That is for sure. I don't even want to go there, but wow. But we'll go back. Okay, comments or thoughts before we go on? All right. Now what happens is there's... Oh, I I didn't quite finish. Okay. So now the king, after he tells this story about this old couple, he realizes that He's dying, and that in, in, sort of in keeping with his own karma, he realizes that he's going blind. This is just this, this night. And he just falls on the ground and seemingly goes to sleep. And his wife, Kaushalya, is there, and Sumitra is there, but they're both so distracted, they really don't appreciate what the seriousness of what has happened to Dasaratha. And it's not until the morning comes and they try to rouse him for the day. Always the servants come, and they sing, and they 
awaken the king in the very royal manner, but he can't be awakened because he's died. And so he said, when Rama leaves, the heart will go out of me, and to Kaike, you will be a widow. And as soon as Rama leaves, this exactly the same thing happens. And the karma that he accidentally set in motion still has to be fulfilled in his life. So now, not only has Rama left, but they have no king. And a city without a king is, is, it doesn't know how to function. So the counselors all get together and they say, well, obviously we have to send for Bharat right away. Because what's happened here is the king has said that Bharat must be crowned. We have to send for him. So he's, he's a, a few days away of, of hard writing to be able to find him. But the Vasishtha, who's taken charge of things, says, you mustn't tell him what's happened here. Because Vasishtha realized you can't just break the news to Bharat and his brother that his father is dead, that Ram has been exiled. I mean, all of these things, it's way too much. You must pretend that everything is just fine, but your father would like you to come back. So they go and they take gifts and they just go as if it were an ordinary uh, visit. But the night before they arrive, Bharat has very evil dreams. Many people in these stories have the sensitivity to sense things before they happen. And they have very evil dreams. And he woke up with great anxiety. And he felt that death was coming to someone. Was it Rama? Was it Lakshman? Was it himself? He really didn't know. So when the um, messengers come from Ayodhya, he's uh, very anxious about them. And he asks questions that show that he's concerned. And the messengers are a little hard-pressed to just maintain their front. But they try to assure him, your father... You're wanted back. You must come to Ayodhya now. And all the gifts are exchanged as they are. But then they, they get into their chariots and they go very fast back to the city. And so in a few days, they've arrived back. And meanwhile, the, they haven't done the funeral for Dasaratha because they can't because there's no sons present to do it. So they've preserved his body in oil while they wait. And so the town, you can imagine, there's not even been a funeral and there's no king so when Bharat comes, he sees that everything seems to be upset. Whereas normally there's people talking, there's people in the streets, there's music that he can hear, but everything is very upset. And he goes right um, to try to find where his father is, but he um, doesn't see him anywhere. So he goes to his mother. And Kaikeyi is just thrilled that her son is back. And she thinks that she has something so wonderful to tell him um, and he, he mentions, where's my father? I haven't seen him. But she says, your father is gone. That's the first thing she tells him. He's lived a long and a good life, and now he's gone to be in the, in the heavenly realms. And Bharat is just overcome with this. I mean, he's devoted to his father. He loves his father, and he falls on the ground. And she says to him, it's not seemly that you should mourn, O my king. You must perform the funeral rites for your father. And Bharat just didn't understand. Um, he, um, where is Rama? Was he, wasn't he there taking care of my father at the end? Um, Rama is a, like a father to me now that my father is done, is the older brother. You know, wh- where is he? What did he say? What did my father say when he died? And Kaikei says his last words were uh, Rama Sita where, you know, where Lakshmana, now I will not live to see you come back. So Bharat realizes that they weren't there either. And he's very concerned about his father. 
What could take them away from his father at their last moments? All his bad dreams are troubling his mind. What kind of a calamity has happened? And Kaikei says, without any awareness of the implications, oh, they have gone off to be ascetics in the forest. And Bharat, he says, I don't understand what you're saying. Sometimes people would go off and do tapasya like that if they had done something wrong and they would have to do penance for it. He said, how can my brother Rama have done anything wrong that would require that he do penance? So finally, she just feels, well, I really have to explain it to him. She says, Rama committed no, no crime. She said, I redeemed, you know, two boons that your father had promised me. One, that Rama would be exiled to the forest, and then the kingdom would be yours. And Bharat is absolutely astonished. She just presents this to him as if he's going to be overjoyed. My son, I've done this for you. And he, he looks at his mother And he, as a son, feels he has the right. And he says, how could you ever imagine that I would want this from you? That you have, you know, taken away my brother, you've killed my father with grief? She said, how could he have taken such a, how could my noble father have taken such a person to be his wife? And in this moment, he completely forgot anything about his duty to his mother He said, you ought to be banished, not Rama. From now on, consider me dead. I would rather be dead than to be the son of someone who's murderous like you. She said, he said, now I'm going to, I'll do the funeral for my father and then I'm going off to the forest and place this kingdom back at Rama's feet. And then I will live in the forest to cleanse myself of this terrible sin that you have committed. And I don't know, Mother, how you will ever redeem yourself. And so Kaikei, all of a sudden, this is the point in which she comes out of this um, chaos-induced dream. Because she sees she's done all of this, and now she hands it to her son. And not only does he not want it, he's enraged with her. Now, Bharat then becomes, and, and as the story progresses, you'll see, he, he becomes also just the embodiment of perfect nobility. His, his mother has gone to all of this. He's, his father has wanted him crowned. His older brother is out of the way. All of a sudden, you know, all this power, all this wealth, all this position, all of it could be his. It's just there for the taking. He's been called back to be crowned king. That's why he's there. But he said, I will have none of this. And he holds to that, and he never, ever... Um, he never wavers. And in fact, when Kaushalya and Sumitra hear that uh, Bharat has come, at first they thought he had rushed back in order to take possession of the kingdom. And she's a little cold to him. Kaushalya's a little cold to him. And then Bharat falls at her feet weeping. Oh, mother, how could you ever think this of me? And he, he's, he disowns Kaikeyi as his mother why do you torture me by not understanding who I really am? And she, of course, then melts in front of his truth and they grieve together. So, they come together and they perform the funeral for Dasarata. Um, no wife burns herself on the pyre. Whether that was ever actually a real tradition or not, I don't know. 
So then after the period of mourning is done, they say it's time for Bharat to assume the throne. And Bharat says, how dare you even ask me? He said, the throne belongs to Rama as the oldest son. I will go to Rama in the forest and I will persuade him to return. And they're actually, everybody's just thrilled with this. And so the whole army gets together and this whole huge escort starts and they all start heading out um, toward to, to go find Rama and to bring him back. And Bharat says, and if Rama, when Rama comes back, I'll stay in the forest and do his penance for him. And that's how we'll solve this. Okay, let me just tell, I'll just tell one more incident here and then we'll go. So Bharat's setting out with this whole army. So it's a big commotion and they're, they're approaching the riverbank where the King Guha was, where Rama spent his first night. And Guha sees this army coming and he's concerned that Bharat is not content merely to have the kingdom for himself, but feels he has to attack and eliminate Rama. So Bharat, you know, Guha treats him somewhat coldly at first, and then Bharat has to say, he said, it's, it's my greatest shame that now those who love Rama um, are suspicious of me. And it's for Bharat, how much worse can this get? You know, that I'm not only assumed that I wanted what rightly belongs to him, but also now I'm distrusted by those who love my brother. And then he persuades him that it's not so. And then he goes then to the um, ashram of the Rishi, the first Rishi that Sita and Rama met. And once again, that Rishi is a little cold to him and asks him what his intentions are. And Bharat again proves himself by his sincerity. And finally, um, the queens have also come. All three of the queens have come. And Bharat introduces both Sumitra and Koshalya, and then when he introduces Kaikeyi, he speaks of her in scathing terms as the woman who caused all of this. And the sage says, everything happens for a reason. You know, be kind even to her, because she was just an instrument of fate, and all of this had to happen. So meanwhile, Rama and Sita and Lakshman are really doing just fine. They've set up a life for themselves in the forest. They're very harmonious. They love one another. Sita and Rama have each other. And what could be the, what could be the difficulty here? Rama's completely unaware that his father has died or anything else that's happened. And Lakshman sees this army coming. And he becomes quite upset. Lakshman, they portray him as having this quick temper who always has to be calmed down by his brother. But he, he's afraid that Bharat is coming, just as Guha thought, to do something evil to Rama. But Rama calms him down. And finally, when uh, Bharat comes close, he you know, comes humbly by himself up to Lord Rama. And he says, Rama's first says, Why have you left our father? Why do you look so worn and thin? And ask certain questions about the whole family. And then Bharat says, Why do you ask me about the kingdom? What does the kingdom have to do with me? He says, It's rightfully yours. You're the king. And then he says that our father has died. He's died of grief over separation from you and that you must now perform the funeral rites for him. So Rama and Lakshman, of course, are grief-stricken at the news, but they do the necessary rituals. And now the 
the queens have come and the citizens have come and everybody's so um, eager because they feel that Bharat, now everything will come back into order. And Bharat says, finally, you must come back to Ayodhya. You know, a grievous wrong has been done to you and I'm here to correct that wrong. And Rama is unmoving, he said. My father promised and I must obey his promise. I can't dishonor him by not keeping his promise. Bharat says, father is dead. You know, the promise is no longer binding upon you. And Ram says, absolutely not. And then Bharat says, but I won't take the kingdom either. So now we have this terrible situation because Ayodhya has no king. There's four sons, but these, these brothers and no one will take it. Even Vasishtha says to Rama, you should return. And then Bharat says, if you don't come back, I'm going to sit on the ground here and I'm going to fast until I die to expiate this terrible sin. And Bharat appeals to the citizens, you know, persuade him to come, but they see that Rama is going to stand by his father's promise and it's helpless. So finally Vasishtha comes up with a solution. He says, Bharat, Rama will not leave the forest for 14 years. Ayodhya cannot be without a king. You will not accept the role, the coronation of king because you, you feel it belongs to Rama, but you must rule under his authority during the years that he's gone. You, you keep the kingdom for him for these 14 years. So Bharat realizes that this is a righteous request, but he says to Rama, he says, Give me a pair of your sandals. And he said, and I will take those sandals and I will put them on the throne and I myself will live outside of the town and I'll rule the town from outside and I will live as you are living in, in a simple way, in an ascetic way and your sandals will be the symbol of your presence. And so Rama gives him sandals and the way it's described is that Bharat takes those sandals and he places them on his head. And then they go back to Ayodhya. Bharat carries Rama's sandals on his head. They reach the town. He goes into the palace. He takes the sandals. He puts them on the throne. Then he exits from the town and he promises never to enter again until 14 years has passed and Rama and Sita return. And so, thus ends our episodes for tonight. Any questions? Oh, he won't. I'm sorry. The last line was that Bharat, that Bharat puts the sandals on the throne and he won't enter the city again for 14 years till Rama returns. And you can see then why Bharat is so revered, you know, as a great noble ascetic, completely surrendering his own desires doing what needs to be done, but without any selfish motive. I mean, these are really fabulous characters to contemplate. Okay, next week. Okay, thank you all. Bye-bye.